All right. Keep your Bibles open to uh, Mark 15. Patty, you mentioned teaching three-year-olds. Well, the good news is we're all like three-year-olds, aren't we? And sometimes we need to be reminded of simple things in simple ways. Did you know that 65%, I'm told this is true, so on the internet it must be, I'm told that 65% of human beings on planet Earth are visual learners. Did you know that? They're visual learners. And here's what that means. It means you can tell them something over and over and over, but in order for them to understand it, they need to see it. Maybe even need to handle it, to taste it, to touch it, but they definitely need to see it. 65% of the people. Do you think God knows that about his creation? I think he does. I'm a visual learner. That's one of the reasons I use PowerPoint. Um, I didn't want to. I thought it was a compromise at one time in my Christian life, I'm sad to say, but it's not. I've had good feedback that it helps people. That's why we put slides up. So uh, I don't have my clicker this morning, guys, so I'm going to rely on you. Uh, but here's, here's an example of what it might be like to be a visual learner. I could tell you this is Florida, and you've all read about all the shark attacks on New Smyrna Beach, right? Good news is they're not fatal, okay? You'll live, uh, but you'll have a, a nice big scar to show for it. But I could tell you, hey, sharks are dangerous, watch out. I could tell you that, right? I could, I could show you a sign, yeah, or I could just show you those pictures, right? And, and instantly, the, uh, what's written in ink on paper or what's on a sign becomes real to you. It becomes more real to you. Or I could tell you, watch out for wildlife, especially if you live in Alaska, Doc, right? Watch out for wildlife. Be careful driving on those roads. A deer or a moose or an elk's going to run by. Or I could just show you this picture. That would do the trick. If there's a moose sitting in the front seat of your sedan, be careful. Be careful. We're visual learners. And God knows that about all of his creation. Um, and I believe Mark understands that. I've told you before, if you like reading through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Mark is the shortest for a reason. Mark is writing to people who have a very short attention span. He's writing to Gentile Romans. And they were big on uh, visual. They were big on power. They were short on words. So you don't get a lot of the long dialogues like you do in Luke's version or Matthew's version. It's just action-packed. And especially when you get to the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. One person said that when you read the four gospels, it's almost as if it's about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with a really long introduction, <laughs> right? So this morning, what we're going to see in this passage is really uh, some visual learning, some really graphic punchy, uh, unforgettable illustrations about some things God's trying to teach us. He could tell us these things, and he does, but God also shows us. In fact, God's really big on visual learning. That's one of the reasons we have ordinances like baptism. Have you ever wondered? That's so weird that God told us, hey, take people and whatever your mode is, okay, if you believe in sprinkling, whatever. Uh, we're, we're, we have Baptist theology here, so we immerse people. It's what the word baptizo actually means, to immerse. We put them all the way under, and you're like, that's so strange. Why would God command that? Because it's a powerful illustration of what it means to be united to Jesus. You are united to him by faith, buried with him in his death. You're united, but you're united to him in his life too. And that's also why we have communion. Jesus knows we have gospel amnesia, guys. We forget things. We forget. So he said, as often as you do this, he, he wasn't legalistic about it. He didn't say, Grace Life, do it every first Sunday in the month. He said, as often as you get together and do this, when you gather, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Because you're going to forget. You're going to forget what I did for you. And it's important that you remember. It's a powerful reminder. 
So this is some visual learning, and we're just going to have three points today. So here's the outline today, just three points. Uh, and these are myth-busting, okay? These are some visual, some visual uh, lessons. They're going to myth-bust things about Jesus, okay? So here's myth number one. You can remain neutral with Jesus. Just sit on the fence, right? Take all the time you want making your mind up about what you're going to do with this man who claims to be a king. Just take your time. No rush, no pressure, no urgency, uh, no big deal. Just stay neutral. And in order to get this across, we've read, uh, Brent's already read the story for us here. We're introduced to a brand new character today in, in the story of Christ. And his name is Pilate. Pontius Pilate. And I need to tell you just a little bit. I want to geek out for just a minute, historically. Uh, who was this man? Because if you understand who he was, then you're going to understand better why he did what he did and why he didn't do what he should have done. And how he went down in history, notoriously. So Pilate was the governor of Judea. He's the governor. He's a powerful political figure. He has a lot of authority. He's the governor of Judea. And I got to be honest with you, that's not like a posh position that every kid who grew up in Rome wanted. Nobody said, when I grow up, I want to be the governor of Judea. That almost was like punishment. It's like, look, man, if you're not in the good graces of Caesar, you better be careful because you could end up being the governor of Judea. You know what I mean? And the reason was because Rome and the Jews had all this bad blood between them. The Jews were a people that wanted to be free. Unfortunately, not spiritually, but politically. They wanted to be free, man. They didn't want to be under anybody's thumb. Can you identify? You don't want anybody telling you what to do. We're Americans and we're free, and it's easy to not understand how the Jews felt. If the uh, American Revolution hadn't happened and we were still over in England and doing whatever the king told us to do, that's how you would feel maybe if you were a Jew. Uh, but compound that by they don't speak your language, they don't appreciate your culture, they don't appreciate your religious traditions. So the Jews did not want to be under the Roman yoke of bondage. They hated it. And so they were always protesting. They were always uh, raising up these local heroes that were insurrectionist and plotted and pitted against Rome. And that caused trouble for the governor because you know what the governor's one job was when he was sent to Judea was this, keep the peace. Keep the peace. Caesar said, you keep the peace. Keep them Jews in line. I don't want to hear any protest. I don't want to hear about any slaughters or revolutions or uprisings. None of that stuff. Just keep the peace. And so that was Pilate's job and he didn't do a very good job of it. Because you know what? He hated the Jews. He really hated them. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that. In Luke chapter 13, it says, during that time, some of the Jews asked Jesus, they said, hey, look, those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifice, were they worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Did you hear that? You know what Pilate did when the Jews came to worship? He got so aggravated at them. They were bent down offering their sacrifice in the temple, and he had his soldiers go in and slice their throat so that their blood was mingled with the blood the priest was offering for them. He hated the Jews. And any chance he got to rub his elbow or poke his finger in their eye, he did. He built a 25-mile aqueduct into Jerusalem. And he got his money to fund it from the temple treasury. They hated him. And he returned the favor. It was almost as if Pilate was assigned to be the principal for a high school that he hated. <laughs> he hated the high school. He hated the students. You know what? They returned the favor. There was bad blood between them. So that's this man, Pilate. And listen, he has been warned. There's been uprising after uprising. And Caesar said, look, man, th these Jews need to be under your control. You're losing control. If it happens again, you're out. 
which usually meant not just you're demoted or you're fired, but you're done, dude, you're dead. <laughs> you're going to end up under a speed bump or a slab somewhere in Rome, okay? So there's a lot of pressure on Pilate, a lot of pressure here. And that's where we find our story here because, check it out, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. Listen to all these verbs. They bound Jesus. They led him away. They delivered him over to Pilate. They want to be done with Jesus. They bind him. They lead him away. They want him delivered. They want him gone. They want him dead. See, they've made up their mind. They're not neutral. At least you can appreciate the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They didn't sit on the fence. You knew exactly where they stood with Jesus. Away with him. We don't want this man to reign or rule over us. We hate him. Not our king. Not our Messiah. Right? So they send him to Pilate. And we pick it up there in, uh, in verse 2. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now this is really, really interesting to me. In Greek, this is just simply two words, and it's this, you say. That's all he's saying. This is some, one of the most bothersome uh, portions of Scripture for me to study, because i got to know, okay, what's he saying? Is Jesus saying, yes, I am a king, or no, I'm not a king? He's, it's almost as if he's ambiguous. I don't like to use that word when we're talking about Scripture, because Scripture's clear, it's powerful, it's authoritative. But Jesus is intentionally vague here, isn't he? You say. Do you know what Pilate is actually asking Jesus? He's asking him this. Do you have an agenda? Are you a threat to me? And you know what Jesus is saying? You better think deeply about this, Pilate. Am I? I love that. I love that. That's, the ambiguity here is actually more powerful. Because I believe, if I can just be honest, friends, that's a question Jesus is putting to all of us this morning. We're saying, Jesus, do you have an agenda for me? Are you a threat to me? And Jesus says, you say, you better think deeply about this. Is Jesus a threat to you? Well, that depends on what your agenda is. There's a place in the Old Testament in Joshua, chapter 7, I love. Joshua is about to lead the children of Israel uh, in war to, to lay bare the city of Jericho. And you can imagine, he's the commander-in-chief. It's the day before the battle. He's doing a reconnaissance mission. He's scoping out their path of, of attack. And he's by himself. And the Bible says in the middle of the road there, he meets the commander of the armies of the Lord. <laughs> he's got this sword drawn, this man that he meets. I believe it's a pre-incarnate figure of Jesus Christ in the road that Joshua meets. And Joshua's a soldier, man. And he's courageous and he's brave and he's faithful. And he says, hey, are you for us or are you against us? Do you remember this? Do you remember what the angel of the Lord says? No. I love the ambiguity, right? Are you for us or are you against us? And he says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua goes, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm standing in the presence of God here. Wrong question. Because what God is saying is, I was going to ask you the same thing. Are you for me or are you against me? Because you've got to decide. You've got to decide. And listen, so often for churches and for, honestly, for pastors, they... They want you to come and have this wonderful experience and, and just stay on the fence for another week. It's interesting, man. Whenever, whenever I come to a passage like this and I preach it and, you know, nobody carries me off in a litter, hooray for Pastor Tommy and his sermon. I mean, in, in, in my idolatrous heart, that's what I want every week, you know. 
But honestly, you know what happens? Two or three people, maybe years down the road, said that was, that was the one for me. That was for me. And I have to say, okay, Lord, this may be one of those sermons. You got one. It's not a shotgun like, we're going to hit everybody, right? Maybe it's a sniper rifle. And there's somebody sitting under the sound of my voice right now. And you don't know it, but God brought you here because you're sitting on the fence. And you think you can maintain neutrality with Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, friends, you can't. Won't work. Christianity doesn't work that way. You don't just sit around and you wait. You've got to deal with Jesus. You've got to make your mind up. Pilate wanted to remain neutral. He tried his best for Jesus to go away. I've read commentaries and I've heard sermons and everyone's talking about Pilate. Pilate so desperately was sympathetic with Jesus and he wanted to release him. No, he didn't. You know what Pilate wanted? Pilate wanted Jesus to go away and for things to return to the way they were before because his job was what? Keep the peace. Keep the peace. And Jesus came and there's an uprising. And Pilate's like, everybody calm down. Um, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Do you want to keep him? You want to crucify him? You want me to, do you want me to punish him but not murder him? And there's all these things going on. Check it out. I got a few, I got a few slides here for you. Because Pilate is a very troubled man. He is tormented. And listen, if you, th- if you think you can remain neutral with Jesus and you come and you hear truth, you're going to be tormented too. Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit is alive and he convicts because he loves us. But check these, check these verses out. Pilate had a wife and the very day that Pilate was to have this hearing with Jesus, his wife had a dream about Jesus and it troubled her. See, the Romans were really superstitious and read a bunch into dreams. And this is what she said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate's conscience is like pricked now. His wife, he's a tormented man. He's afraid. And, and, and you know what? I can hit the timeout button and say, look at, look at that verse up there, because that is how many people live their life concerning Jesus. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. Oh, he's righteous. Something very powerful and authoritative and special about Jesus. Even his enemies said that. No man ever spoke like this man. When he would speak to the crowds, they were like struck out of their mind. Explazo is the word in Greek. They were struck out of their minds. Even Pilate, a little bit later, there's a word, thaumazo. It means he marveled. He was amazed. He had never seen anybody do and say the things that Jesus did and said. He was amazed at Jesus, but he was afraid of Jesus too. And his wife said, don't have anything to do with him. And that's his M.O., that is his M.O. He's going to do all he can to have nothing to do with Jesus. He's not going to say, I like him. He's not going to say, I dislike him. He just wants Jesus to go away and for life to return to normal in Judea. That's what he wants. And honestly, that's what a lot of people want. Oh, I don't hate Jesus. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like into religion and all that, but I don't hate him. I think he wrote some cool things. He was a mighty prophet. He changed some people's lives. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just not really into religion have nothing to do with that righteous man. That's where they're at. And maybe that's where some of you are at today. But listen, that's a myth. You can't stay there. That's a terrible place to live your life anyway. Your conscience is going to be cut up into shreds. As his was. Here's the second verse. So Pilate's trying to do stuff, right? He's trying to appease the crowds. He's trying to give the Jews what they wanted. And, and, And here was the deal. See, the religious leaders want Jesus to die. But they're under, they're under Roman authority, and they don't have the freedom to execute their own criminals without Rome's permission. So they can't just stone Jesus and kill him. They want to, but they can't. 
No, they have to convince the Roman authorities, Pilate, that Jesus has done something worthy of a capital offense. So they got to trump up these charges. And you know what they say? They say, this man is causing an uprising. He's telling people to not pay their taxes. Oh, that got Pilate's attention. Oh, he's one of those people that don't pay their taxes. Oh, I see. And they're like, but but, but that's not all, Pilate. He's also saying that, that there's another king besides Caesar. Oh, now Pilate's radar is very active. He's like, okay, he's on my radar now. Because Pilate didn't care if Jesus was a blasphemer. He didn't care if he was calling himself the Messiah. It didn't bother him at all. That's none of Rome's business. You, you Jews can take care of that. But when they trumped up these political charges, suddenly Pilate is interested. And now he's got to do something. He's got to render judgment. But he's bothered because there's something different with Jesus. He's never encountered this before. He has never arraigned a criminal before and the criminal not defend himself. Did you see that in the, in the second part of this? Check this out. He says, are you a threat to me? Do you have an agenda? And Jesus says, you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He was amazed at Jesus. He had never seen anybody who's in danger of being executed not defend themselves. But Jesus was silent like Isaiah 53, 7 says. Like a sheep is silent before it slaughters, so Jesus was silent. He uttered not one word, didn't defend himself, didn't beg for his life, didn't grovel on the gravel in front of Pilate and say, please, you don't understand, I'm not supposed to be here, this is all wrong. The the terrible, wicked Jews, they're persecuting me, he didn't say any of that. He was silent, and Pilate was amazed. And he was trying to the best he could to make Jesus go away, salvage what's left of his conscience, appease the crowds, stay neutral. Doesn't work that way. It's not how it works for him or for us. And then the last scripture I think that I have up there is uh, John 17. Right? 19, thank you. I was just testing you to make sure you knew your Bible. (laughs) Because this story is in all four of the Gospels. I mean, if it was just in one gospel, that's enough. But God really wants this on our radar. This is a really important part of the New Testament story. So this is what John's gospel says. The Jews say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Do you hear how clever they are? They're like, if you do this, if you release Jesus because you want to be done with him, we're going to go tell Caesar. <laughs> we're, going to, we're, going to, we're not going to go quietly. We're going to create a, a, a revolt, an uprising. And then you're going to have to deal with us. And that's not what Pilate wants. He's a man torn. You, uh, you know, I've read this, and there's times I feel sorry for Pilate. I think he's the most pathetic and pitiable person in the New Testament. And then there's times I hate him. I hate him. You know, you read in 1 Timothy 6, Paul telling Timothy, make the good confession, just like Jesus did before Pilate. Pilate, whom Jesus suffered under. Pilate, who said, crucify him. You know, you're, you're torn. Kind of like with Herod, the same thing. Herod heard John the Baptist preach, and when he heard him, he was glad, and he did many things. But he had a party, and he showed off, and he made a promise to give his daughter whatever she wanted up to half the kingdom. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head, so he had to do it. 
You know, those guys are wicked and they're responsible for what they did and that they were also torn and they wanted to remain neutral and they almost, they wanted to be for, uh, both for and against Jesus. And you can't be there. In fact, let me be real blunt with you. You know, there's, there's a few things the Bible tells us directly that God hates. And, w- and when you read those, you sit up, man, it gets your attention, right? False witness, people who shed innocent blood. Uh, Proverbs 6, I think, talks about that. You know, there's something else in the Bible that God hates too. It's a book of Revelation. You know what it is? To the church in Laodicea. Somebody help me out here. What, what does God hate? Lukewarmness. He hates that. He says, you know, you're not, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're, you're, you're lukewarm. Oh, I wish that you were hot or cold. I would almost prefer you be like the Jews that would just say away with him. What I can't stand is, is for you to be in the middle, to sit on the fence. I'm going to puke you out of my mouth. That's a violent illustration of how God feels about us trying to remain neutral. He doesn't like that. And you know, the, 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 the deeper I grow into the gospel, I don't like it either for myself or for other followers and disciples of Jesus because it's a terrible place to live your life. You can't serve two masters. You can't do that. You weren't made to do that, to be that way. A lot of people do think that Jesus is a threat to them, and that's unfortunate. They do think he has an agenda. And you know what? As long as they're on the throne of their life, he does have an agenda to dethrone them. <laughs> it's, it's like this, man. Jesus has to jam your life up before he fixes it. My wife and I have been going to a, uh, to a new chiropractor in land, and she's amazing, man. I've never... I've never, oh, thank you, they got it up there. I've never been to a chiropractor like this. It's, she's deceptive because uh, she doesn't look that strong. <laughs> but then I lay down on the table and it was like, hack, hack, crack, yak. And I'm like, oh, my word. And, and, and my wife and I, we, we're not making fun of her. I hope, it's okay. I hope this is not inappropriate. But you know, it's the thing a husband and wife do together. I'm like, man, I went to Helga. We call her Helga. I'm like, I went to Helga again. And Helga's like, I will fix you, but first I break you. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what I feel like, man. She's, <laughs> I got this thing, uh, what's it called in your feet? Fascio. I feel like I'm calling my foot a communist every time I try to. I got a fascist foot, right? There's something wrong with it. And she, the other day I went to her and, oh my word, I have never felt. I told her, I said, hang on a minute. <laughs> I said, did you get this like from a World War II document for, for uh, tormenting the prisoners? I don't know. She called it grappling or grappling. I don't know what it was. But man, it hurt. And she said, this is going to help you. I've got to do this. Are you all in or are you out? I'm like, no, you, oh, all, right, all right, Helga, break me so you can fix me. But Jesus sometimes has to jam your life up and that hurts. And you know what? A lot of people never get past that point. They never get past that point. Seems like Jesus is, is killing them, but he's saving them. They won't let themselves get to that point. They view him as a threat. View him as a threat. And you know, if you read the New Testament, you can see the kinds of reactions that people had to Jesus. Remember the woman at the well in John 4? He's telling her everything about her life. All the secrets are coming out. And it, that's got to hurt. It's got to hurt for somebody to tell you everything you've ever done, right? It's got to be humiliating and embarrassing and a little bit liberating too because they still love you. <laughs> and Jesus told her all these things. And you know what it says that she did in John chapter 4? It says this Samaritan woman who was like probably a reject reject, came to the well at a time of the day where nobody else was there. She was so ashamed of her life, but couldn't do anything to change it, couldn't fix herself. And Jesus came and he said, you're drinking water that makes you thirsty again. I can fix that. 
It's going to hurt, though. It's going to hurt before it gets better. And the Bible says she ran into the city and she said, come here, the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I don't know. Come see. Don't you love that? (laughs) He broke me so that he could fix me. And I'm going to share that love with everybody. And then there's the other people like in Mark chapter 5. We studied this last year. The demoniac. Remember the naked, bloody man, maniac that lived in the graveyard and, and screamed at all hours of the night and was filled with demons? That's real. That really happened. And Jesus came to Decapolis and visited that man. And when Jesus left, the Bible says he was clothed, he was seated, he was in his right mind. And the people of the town came and saw it and they were terrified. And Jesus also sent 2,000 swine over the cliff, probably the livelihood of that town. And it didn't bode well with the people. You know what they said? Go away. Get out of our town. Go away, Jesus. You know what Jesus did? He, got, he went away. I mean, those are the different reactions you see. Either you're for Jesus or away with Jesus. Can't be neutral, though. You can't be neutral. Does Jesus have an agenda for you? He does. <laughs> If you want to continue to maintain your fallen identity, (laughs) yeah, he's going to be a threat to you because that identity has got to shift. It's got to shift if you want true freedom. You know, it's no secret, and my wife limits me to like one of these illustrations per month, but I love Lord of the Rings. It's it's almost inspired. No, it's not. It's not inspired. But uh, one of my favorite scenes... In the book, it's better, actually, okay? One of my favorite scenes is when Gandalf, uh, he's no longer Gandalf the Grey, he's Gandalf the White, but nobody knows it yet, right? So there's this king, King Theoden of Rohan, and he's, like, possessed. You see that picture? The guy on the right is is possessed and, like, poisoned by the guy on the left, uh, Grim Wormtongue. Anyway, it's a long story. I'll spare you the details, but he is, like, under bondage, and he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. And, and Gandalf comes and visits him. And all the people that are in on the coup try to keep Gandalf out. They're like, no, 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 the king doesn't want to see you. Leave your staff outside. Leave your weapons. But Gandalf comes in and he says something really interesting. He says this to his friend. He says, I bid you come out and look abroad. Too long have you sat in the shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. Breathe the free air again. And then he unrobes himself and he's Gandalf the White and he's dazzling and he cast out Sauron, the demonic oppression and controller and influence. You remember you've seen this. And the next slide shows you the transformation. There's before, there's after. Now, the question is, was Gandalf a threat to him? You better believe he was if you're going to get to the part on the right he is. And, 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 and in the, the scene's powerful. You can go Google it later, okay? He's like shaking like, ah! <laughs> and the crown on his head is wobbling. But he had, to, he had to hurt him to help him, right? He had to break him to fix him. And that's why Pilate doesn't want to be broken by anybody. He doesn't want Jesus to be all intrusive and invasive. Just keep him at bay and stay on the fence. So interesting. So that's, that's point number one, is, myth number one rather, is that you cannot maintain your neutrality with Jesus. Jesus wants you all in. That's what he wants for every single person here. And uh, the second point is going to be really fast, okay? Uh, second myth here. Who's laughing? <laughs> yeah, you know your pastor, don't you? Here's the second uh, myth we need to bust visually. You can depend on human power. You can depend on human power. That's a myth. You can't. Because look, living, breathing illustration is Pontius Pilate. 
He's the governor. He's got political power. He can snap his fingers and you can die. He can snap his fingers and you can live. He had ultimate power. Where does it leave him? At the mercy of the Jews. He's basically at the end, he's asking the Jews, what do you want me to do? It's almost like he's begging. Tell me what to do. I'm so torn. I'm so torn. That's why there's that part of you that pities and and feels sorry. You're almost sympathetic and empathetic with Pilate because he had all this power. I mean, he could have snapped his fingers and all the Jews would would have hushed. And he said, go away. I'm releasing this man. I've already told you he's done nothing worthy of death. That's what's interesting to me is that Pilate on three different occasions says, I find him innocent. He's done nothing worthy of death. He's done nothing wrong. But he ends up ultimately sending him to his execution. A man with that kind of power and that kind of authority. If you, li- if you live your life based on that, then it could very easily go for you the same way it did for Pilate. But here's the other living, breathing illustration in this story is Barabbas. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that I think most people get Barabbas wrong. And by the way, that name, do you know what his name means? Bar means son of, and Abba means father. Barabbas, son of the father. Isn't that interesting? Some people have gone as far as, say, with ancient, uh, I, I don't want to get into the, the, the Greek and, and all that stuff. But some people, one of the original manuscripts they found from Matthew chapter 27 said his name was Jesus Barabbas. That's real interesting, isn't it? You've got Jesus Barabbas over here and you've got Jesus the Christ over here. And Pilate is saying, which one do you want? But check this out. Barabbas was a hero to the Jewish people. I think most movies about this get it wrong. He was a hero. You know why? He was an insurrectionist. You know what that means? He was trying to free the Jews from the, the yoke of Roman oppression, which all of them was, amen, that's what they wanted. Can I be really honest with you? That's what they wanted Jesus to do for them, and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> Seriously. All they ever wanted Jesus to be and do was what Barabbas tried to be and do and failed miserably. <laughs> so here's Barabbas. He's violent. He's powerful. He's popular. He's an insurrectionist. The Bible says he's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a robber. He's notorious. Everybody knew about him. And everybody loved Barabbas. But you know what? You know where all this power and violence and oppression, you know where it got Barabbas? Where did it get him? In prison, on death row. That's where it got him. See, the myth is what you need is like power, human power and ingenuity and you need to be legit and have street cred. And man, that'll get you far in life. Will it really? I mean, look at Pilate and look at Barabbas. Where did it get them, really? Is power what you really need? I would go far to say uh, power and money and influence, they're incredible blessings when you use them for the kingdom. And I thank God there's people in this church and they've modeled that for me. And I would also say this, those things can be terrible liabilities. Terrible liabilities. Jesus even tells Pilate, the one who sent me to you, Herod, his is the greater sin. Oh, there's accountability for how you use your power and your money and your influence. And if you're depending on those, it's not going to work. Where power and violence get you is in chains. That's where Barabbas was. That's where Pilate was. But I got to go, go forward to the, uh, to the last one here. This is the last point for today, and this is going to transition us into... Communion. The last myth is that you can stand on your own record. And this is where the whole visual learning thing, to me, comes, comes to life. See, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says something like this. He says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, 
so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you hear that language? You know what that language is? It, that's like exchange language. And that's like deep theology. It's rich doctrine. Important, incredible truth. There's like this exchange going on. When you are in Christ, Jesus took your sins on himself. He took your guilt. He took your curse. And he gives you his righteousness. He gives you his blessing. He releases you and he's bound on your behalf. See, we're told that multiple places in the Bible. But here there's like this really incredible uh, live example that we see with Barabbas and with Jesus. Son of the Father and Son of the Father, right? This is the great exchange. And the myth is that, you know what, I'll probably, I can remain neutral with Jesus and I'll trust in my own power, my own ingenuity, and it'll probably be good at the end because your good will outweigh the, the bad. And, G, and Jesus, he understands me, he knows my heart. That's true, he does, that's the problem, right? <laughs> he does know your heart, the bottom of your heart, the rebellion there, the insurrection there, the treason, cosmic treason there. But the myth is that I'll be okay. I'll be able to stand on my own, you know, because I've done a lot of good things in life and Jesus gets me. He understands me. You know what today is, by the way? February 2nd, what is it? It's Groundhog Day. And, and we're no longer at a place in our culture where, where people think of the whole winter and the shadow thing. You know what people think of? Bill Murray. That's what people think of when they think of Groundhog Day, right? That's everybody's, a lot of people's favorite movie. And I actually like that movie because there's an important theological point in the movie to be made. Bill Murray plays the, the, the part of a guy named Phil, uh, what's his last name? Connor. Phil Connor, right? And he goes to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and uh, he relives the same day over and over and over. Every day he wakes up and it's Groundhog Day again. And at first he's, he's living it up, pleasure, uh, everything, eating, committing gluttony, <laughs> And, and, you know, finding new and fandango ways to die, electrocutes himself, sets himself on fire, drives a truck off a cliff with a groundhog on his lap. You, you know the routine. Uh, but, but no matter what he does, he ends up reliving this day and he starts to figure out, wait a minute, I'm like on trial here. There's something I'm do, either doing wrong or something I'm omitting and not doing altogether. And until I do it, this is going to be on repeat the rest of my life. So Phil Connor finally realizes that he had been living that day for other, he'd been living that day for himself. And he starts living that day for other people. And when he gets it right, he wakes up and next chapter of his life, ta-da, everything works out. Can I be honest with you? That's a cool movie. It's a fairy tale. You know why? Because none of us in this room have ever lived the perfect day, <laughs> ever. And you never will. I know, man, you come to church and you get this terrible news, right? Let me ask you a question. How long do you think you've actually gone without sinning? Like on your, be on your best day, man, when you woke up and you had like the strong coffee and you were on your A-game spiritually, man, you were crushing the devotions, you were leading like your dog to Christ, you were like on it. How long do you think it, it, it was before you actually sinned, either in word, deed, or, oh, here's the big one, thought? How long before you envied? How long before you got angry unjustly at somebody? How long? How long before you lusted? How long before you even wanted to click on that image? You didn't. Oh, great. But you wanted to, so the lust is there. How long? I don't even want to know. I think it would, I think it would just terrify me. I can't, even, I can't even sleep and not sin sometimes. And my, my wife woke up the other morning, and she said, Man, was I mad at you in my dream? I'm like, what, what did I do? I'm like sinning against my wife in her dreams. 
No, nobody in this room, nobody who's ever lived, except for one person, has ever been spotless and clean and pure, without blemish. Only one. And it's Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, this book is not about how to live a morally acceptable life and present that to God. This book is not about that. It's about people who tried to do that and failed miserably. No, the real plot of this book is the story of what Jesus has done to rescue from that. That's what this book is about. That's what this communion is about. And I think there's a really powerful picture and image with Jesus and with Barabbas. Let me read the rest of this and then we'll close out here, okay? Now at the feast, he used to release for them, and that's a key word in this passage, release, release, release and deliver, release and deliver, back and forth. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So check this out. Barabbas was released. Jesus was delivered over to be crucified, to die. Release and deliver. Two men, one of them condemned, guilty, notorious, liar, thief, murderer. The other, innocent. Never did anything but heal people, help people, came to destroy the works of the devil, loved people, even ungrateful people. And there's this exchange taking place here. Barabbas goes free. He's released Jesus is delivered over. They trade places. See, it's almost as if God treated Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Do you understand? 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's a picture of you and I. I don't know if you have a flattering view of yourself, <laughs> In church this morning, but let me tell you, the story is not, you know, if given the opportunity, people will always choose Barabbas over Jesus. Maybe that's like the fifth point of application in this story, not the first. I think what Mark is trying to get across, guys, are you ready for this gut punch? We're Barabbas, okay? We are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. We deserve that cross. We should have been up there. Use your sanctified imagination with me for a minute. Barabbas is in his jail cell. He's a convicted insurrectionist. You know where he went? To a cross. That's where he went. Crosses were cruel. It was the, the gro most grotesque and notorious form of punishment reserved for traitors, rebels, and slaves. He was a traitor and he was a rebel. He was going to get a cross. And he's in prison down below the praetorium probably, hearing the crowds shout, crucify him, crucify him. What do you think is going through his mind? This is it. This is it. The day has come. 
He's probably thinking, the nails that are going to go through my wrist, oh, it's going to hurt. The suffocation, the asphyxiation, the humiliation, they're going to rip my clothes off. They're going to scourge me first. I knew this day was come. I shouldn't have been a rebel. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then the guards come and get him. And they open the door. And they say, you're free, Barabbas. You can go. And he says, don't, don't torment me. And they're like, no, you're free. You can go home now. By, by order of the authorities that be, you've been released. And he says, how can this be? And they're like, go, get out. And Barabbas climbs up the steps and he peeks around and he sees this, this man with a crown of thorns on his head who's just been beaten. You remember we studied this before? Jesus has already been beaten to a pulp. They plucked out his beard. They spit in his face. The Bible says that the guards received him with blows, Lombano. They've been beating him to a pulp, saying, prophesy who hit you, Messiah. So here stands this bloody, beaten, thorns on his head man who's about to go to a cross. And, and, and right when Barabbas looks around the corner, he sees Jesus being delivered over and being led outside the city gates to Calvary. And you've got to think what, what Barabbas is thinking. That's, that's my cross. I deserve that. I'm breathing the free air that he deserves. My, my shackles have fallen off, and Jesus is going and been sentenced to death. You know, I don't, I don't know what the rest of Barabbas' life was like. I'd like to hope that he was there and he followed the crowd and went and stood maybe beside the Apostle John at the foot of the cross and watched what happened, knowing all the while you deserve to be up there. You deserve to be up there. Jesus became what you deserved so that you could become what he deserved. <laughs> the divine exchange, friends. That's what the gospel is all about. You know the very last part of this here? The very last part of chapter 15, or excuse me, of this section. And it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and delivered up Jesus to be crucified. That's the gospel. You and I have been released only because Christ has been condemned. That's the gospel. That's powerful. That's beautiful. That's how Jesus feels about you and I. That's how powerful and radical the love of God is. That's what God wants us to think on this morning as we come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you help us as we uh, prepare our minds and our hearts to take communion together, to celebrate your broken body, your shed blood, so that we could be spared, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into your family. We, could, we were the outsiders who you brought in and made insiders. We were outside of Christ, under the wrath of God, awaiting our sentence, just like Barabbas was. And then the prison doors flew open, the shackles fell, and we beheld a man who took our place, who was our substitute, who was punished on our behalf who absorbed all the blows of your fury and wrath that, that, that we should have taken. Help us to absorb that today, Lord, and, and be empowered and liberated to go out and live on mission for you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.